Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. Welcome again to In Town Church. If you're new with a, new uh, to In Town or visiting with us this morning, I'd love to meet you after the service. And um, if you haven't been around, we've been going through a study of First Peter. Uh, called Everyday Christianity. And this morning we're looking at everyday community. What does it mean? What does it look like? Or what should it look like to be a part of the body of Christ and part of a a local community that's committed to his gospel? So let me pray for us and then uh, we'll look into what Peter has for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would meet us in this place. Meet us in our anxiety Meet us in our affluence, meet us in our sinfulness, meet us in our brokenness, meet us in our holiness, in our confusion, in our confidence. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, would you find us? Would you come and make your presence known to us? Would we experience your grace, experience your fatherly, tender, loving care and loving kindness again, or maybe for the first time this morning? Give us a sense of yourself. Give us a sense of who you are and who you want to be for us. Give us flashes of self-discovery. Let us encounter you, a God who knows us in all of our experiences, and that in all of them, you move toward us with grace. And so, Father, let us respond. Let us walk towards you as you have walked towards us this morning. We pray for the reading and now the preaching of your word, that it would resound to your glory and to the good of your people and all of those who are gathered here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are new to in town, it it won't be long if you stick around uh, before someone will invite you to be a part of a community group or visit a community group. It's a big part of what we do here at in town. And we have an assistant pastor who one of his primary responsibilities is running and managing the community group system and launching new groups. It's very important to us. And one of the most encouraging things that I hear as a pastor, though I like to think myself indispensable, what I love to hear is when people have difficulties, when they have struggles, when they have issues come up, that they go first to their community group, that they share it with their community group leader, that it's their leader that calls me and says, hey, did you know what's going on in this person's life? And I just wanted to let you know we're handling it, we're going to take care of them, but I just wanted to make you aware. And I love hearing that. Now, you, you need pastors, I hope you know that. I wouldn't have a job otherwise. But I love sensing that people are finding pastoral care, spiritual nourishment. They're finding refuge in homes and in community, intentional community with one another. And that's what these community groups do and try to foster is this intentionality to minister to one another, to give spiritual care and nourishment to one another so that people encounter Jesus not just here on Sunday morning but throughout the week. And so we really talk about community groups as sort of the second thing that you must be a part of, be a part of Sunday morning, but also community groups in order to really get what we're doing here at InTown and what we're about, and if you really want to grow. Now, we've been looking at 
a series of uh, one letter, a series of sermons from uh, a series of passages from Peter written to people who are in exile, people who are part of a marginalized group. These people have been distributed, pushed out of their community and exist all over the Mediterranean basin and their views are very suspect. They come from sort of a, a back row in terms of cultural influence. And it's very interesting because it's these people these marginalized people, those whose views are very suspect in their community, who are then called upon to image forth Jesus and to invite people into the community of God. And so that's a, it's a tall order because the church, the community is called to draw people into fellowship with God, not from places of power, but places of real marginalization. And it seems that Peter sees this only as happening only possible through a vibrant community that has Jesus at the very center of who they are, of their identity, both as individuals and as a community, that that's the only way that this marginalized, suspect, impoverished group of people, impoverished power-wise, culturally speaking, will ever have the opportunity, will ever have influence towards their friends that they would say, maybe I need to investigate Jesus. Maybe he has something to say to my life. There's something in this alternative society that Jesus sets up in the Sermon on the Mount and that Peter is now recommending to these exiled, marginalized people to be an alternative society with Jesus at the center and that in some way that that's provocative. It's inviting. It's welcoming to people. Now, we're going to back up a little bit, and I don't do this very often, but I actually want to look at what we looked at last week for just a few moments before we kind of look into what uh, Brian read earlier. Because we read this last week, but we didn't really address it. We didn't have time to address it, but it's critical to what Peter is saying to this community. Peter begins this chapter, chapter 2. Well, he, they didn't have chapters in the Bible, but he begins this section and he's making a transition. He's about to tell them this is the type of community that they need to be. And it's based upon what he said previously. It's based upon what he just told them. And he says in verse 1 of this chapter, Therefore, so that, or so then, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So astute readers, even though there's no chapter transitions in this letter that he originally sent, astute readers would know that here's, he's making a big transition, that there's a connection of how to become this community that's based upon what's already happened in their life. So then, therefore, something radical has taken place. That's the therefore. He wants them to look back into their experience and understand that something so fundamental, so radical has taken place in their lives that the only word that he can think of is this much maligned phrase in our culture, born again, that they have been born anew, that something so radical, so profound has happened in them 
that the only analogy he can come up with is actual new birth. It's someone coming out of the womb for the very first time, becoming alive. And that's what he's talking about. That's what he's referencing as he then talks about community. Remember who you are. Remember what's happened in your life. This new birth. For these people, these marginalized people, these people out of power, Jesus isn't just a new spiritual regimen that they take up. It's not just them getting their life put in order. It's not a new political philosophy that they adopt. Now, it can't not be those things. It can't not affect those things. But it's certainly so much more than that. It's so radical that he's grasping for words, and it's, it's new birth, that they've been born again. They're a completely new person. They've been made to become, they've been born into the family of God. And as his children, they're supposed to crave pure spiritual milk. Crave it. It's a new craving based upon this new reality in their life. And insofar as you understand this new birth, you will begin to crave spiritual milk like a newborn baby. Now, how do babies let you know that they're hungry? Moms, dads, you, you kind of hear them around the congregation from time to time. It's not just this sort of polite, hey, mom, over here, if you got a second, I'd like to eat in the near future. No, it's, Wah! you know, I need to eat now. It's a craving. It's an incessant longing, and they make that need known in very verbal ways. It's not a a polite hint. Mom, come on over. I need to eat. No, it's feed me now. That's craving. A baby craving spiritual milk, longing so much that they'll verbalize this until you meet it. That's the sort of craving that Peter is recommending, or at least describing as indicative of someone who has had their life turned upside down. It's feed me now, craving, frantic, insistent. And then what happens? Well, the baby gets fed, and then they're relaxed. They're placid. They're completely at peace. There's this transition that happens. Now, if we're to pull back the layers of any of our lives, isn't it evident that we're all looking for something, we're all craving something, that we have desires, we have motivations that are pushing us to behave in certain ways. These drives, these motivations, they show up in our calendar, they show up in our goals, they show up in how we spend our time. And if we were to pull back the layers of any of our lives, we could identify with a little bit of thought, what are those cravings? What are those drives? What are those motivations? And how are they showing up? And how are they leaving us? Are they leaving us frantic? Are they leaving us disturbed and craving for something, leaving us empty and hungry? Or do they leave us relaxed and placid? Do they leave us with a calm? Maybe many of our lives, and I know mine often does, resembles this, this crying, this frantic child who can't get what they want, and they just keep trying. They keep yelling. They keep screaming until we find it, and it seems like it's always just outside of our grasp. Many of our lives are like that, but how many of our lives have that placid 
look. You've seen a baby after they feed. It's almost like they're drunk and passed out. But they're, they're completely at rest. Implicit in this text is that there are things in this life that we pursue that keep us frantic, that keep us afraid, that keep us never at peace. Those of us, however, if we crave spiritual milk, those who crave the truth about God and the truth about who we are and who allow God to remake them, allow God to birth them again, their cravings can actually be met. And you can feel satisfied and yet still hungry for more at the same time. Crave spiritual milk so that you may or it may grow up in your salvation. Now, we need to take a moment, though, to answer what, what is this spiritual milk? What is he talking about? What is he recommending? And he equates the spiritual milk in chapter 1 with the Word of God. But keep in mind that in terms of Peter's mind, the Word of God as it's inscripturated was just the Old Testament. The New Testament was still being written, and it hadn't been compiled into what we now consider our Bible. So he's not making a one-to-one correlation with the Word as being the Bible. And if our response to this is simply that we need to crave more of the Bible, we need to crave to read more, to memorize more, to know more of the Bible, we're going to be missing something. We're going to be missing the interpretive key, the hermeneutic that opens up the whole Bible. As we looked at Luke last year, he was constant, Jesus was constantly in conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law who knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They had many, many passages, if not most of the Old Testament, memorized, and yet they missed the key. They didn't understand what they were, were reading. And so Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. And so we need to be careful in that insofar as we grow in Bible knowledge and awareness and even memorizing the Bible, it can either make you grow up in your salvation as you feed upon that, or it can tend to do the opposite, and it can make you more arrogant and sort of a jerk. So we need to make sure that we have the interpretive key, the hermeneutic of Jesus that allows the Word to flourish in our lives, allows it to come alive, that it unlocks what the Bible is actually saying. When Peter says Word, craving pure spiritual milk, that is the Word, he's not equating it just as the Bible. What he means is the message about Jesus, the Son of God, who took on himself the sin of the world and has given these people new life by grace and is then taking them and moving them into the world to renew the whole world. The basic storyline of the Bible that has Jesus at the very center, that's what he's talking about. That's the pure spiritual milk. It's the grand, beautiful story of the Bible of a God of love and mercy intervening in our story and remaking the world by grace. So this is not the ABCs of Christianity, as you've heard us talk about, but it's, it's the A to Z. It's everything. And insofar as you get that piece, if that's your hermeneutic, if that's your key to the Bible, then the Bible can begin to flourish in your life. The Word can spring up and help you understand your salvation more fully. This is the spiritual milk 
Babies move on to other foods, of course, but Christians never move beyond needing this spiritual milk, never move beyond needing to, needing to feed on the pure, spiritual, unadulterated milk of the gospel. You see, Peter doesn't say, you are newborn babies. Crave spiritual milk because you are newborn babies. Likely some of them were, but some of them were grown-ups. Some of them had been Christians for a number of years. He doesn't say crave spiritual milk because you are newborn babies. He says crave spiritual milk like newborn babies. You will never grow out of your need for the gospel, for the basic storyline of grace and what God has done in your life by His mercy. This is the cravings of a community that is able to be this sort of spiritual beacon, pointing and inviting people to Jesus. It's a community that's always, always remembering the gospel, always feeding on the spiritual milk of Jesus, the eternal Word of God. And the community that does this, the community that craves pure spiritual milk, becomes a community that has a different character. In 2007, CNN ran a story about three inmates in the most secure federal prison in the country. This was where the most notorious, the most dangerous criminals were housed, and it's in Colorado. I think there may be another one by now, but it's called the Supermax Prison. And these prisoners live 23 hours a day secluded, and then they go out into the yard for one hour of sort of exercise and fresh air, but they're still in a cage. Now, the story was about this unusual friendship that had developed between three men while they were in the yard, while they had this hour a day to interact. And it was uh, a friendship between three residents on the wing of this supermax prison called Bomber's Row. And it was known as such because at the time, Timothy McVeigh, Ted Kaczynski, and Ramzi Ahmed Youssef all lived there, as well as a couple of other people, but it was called Bomber's Row. McVeigh, if you'll remember, was the right-wing bomber of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, and Ted Kaczynski was the left-wing unibomber who sent mail bombs to kill high-tech corporate people around the country. And Ramzi Ahmed Youssef was the Islamic fundamentalist mastermind of the World Trade Center bombing in the early 90s. So you have these three notorious criminals, a right-winger, a radical right-winger, a radical left-winger, I'm doing that opposite, but, and then a fundamentalist Muslim. And yet, they all get along very well. They start swapping stories. They develop this friendship. They develop this mutual respect for one another. And this friendship becomes notorious so that CNN comes in and does this story. The New York Times Magazine ran a story on it. Something about who they were, right-winger, left-winger, fundamentalist Muslim, something about who they were trumped all of their sort of ideological differences, their political differences, their national differences. Something about them was much more fundamental than those things that you would look and superficially say, these people could never even have a conversation. They would kill one another, and yet these people began to have a friendship. And what was it? There was something 
though coming at it from different angles, that they shared together this, this deep disgust of Western civilization, that they each were rebelling against this 20th century culture, particularly as it was embodied by the United States. And it was this that was at the center of who they were. The fact that one was coming at it from the right wing and the other from the left wing and someone from fundamentalist Islam became irrespective. They were joined together by their deep disgust so much with the United States and the West that they were willing to blow things up and kill people. This was at the center of their identity, of their character, and it made them look able to look behind or beyond the more superficial ways in which they were different. Now, Peter says to these people, and he says to you, if you are a part of Intown, if you are a Christian, is that something so fundamental has changed in your life, that you've been given a new, fundamental, profound identity, that it trumps and it transcends all of the ways that you've sought to build your identity before. And in the context of Christian community, in the context here at Intown, is that this deep foundational change that has taken place makes deep relationships, makes deep attachment, makes love and service to one another possible in spite of differences, in spite of these more superficial ways that we've sought to explain ourselves to other people. We've sought to build meaning and identity in our lives. The things that we tend to look at as being the most significant markers of who we are and who someone else, what Peter is saying, no, 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 there's something much more deep down, much more fundamental that trumps and transcends all of those things. And it's telling us that despite the ways that we define ourselves in our world, despite where we may present ourselves as, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, how we parent or discipline our children, what kind of car we drive, our views on secondary matters of theology, that those things are trumped and transcended by your new identity as a born-again person, someone who's been made new, that that's what's most central, and that's why community can actually happen. It's because that's the most important thing, and all of those other superficial ways become more and more, become obviously superficial. And so we need to realize that the amount of time that we spend in our heads differentiating ourselves against other people, the more we let these superficial differences become foundational and therefore determine relational intimacy, therefore predetermine outcomes of relational dispute, cause us to be suspicious about other people and their motives and what they think about this and how they vote. It's to that same extent that we've forgotten, that we've stopped craving the spiritual milk, the fundamental change that's happened in your life because and through the gospel. You see, when we nourish ourselves by grace, when we nourish ourselves on Jesus, the eternal word, when we feed upon the fact that we were made new, that we were birthed again, that it happened to us, it wasn't something that we earned or did to ourselves, it was that God came and intervened in the midst of our sin and brokenness and made you new, made me new. It's then that we can look at the verse and the list in 
verse 1 and avoid those things that he says make Christian community impossible. Malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. You see, keeping this feeding, nourishment, drinking spiritual milk metaphor going, that we'll either nourish ourselves with the gospel, with the grace and mercy of Jesus, and let that be our center, or we'll nourish ourselves and our identity, our false identity, with slander and malice and hatred and envy. You see, we won't be able to stand life if we don't have a stable center based upon grace and mercy. We won't be able to stand life when other people get more than we have. When it's not going well for us and it's going so well for the person next to us. We won't be able to tolerate someone else getting recognition and acclaim when we're not getting it. You see, don't we slander people because we need to feel better about ourselves? Don't we envy what others have because we don't believe ourselves to be fundamentally right with the world and right with God and right within ourselves? You see, a a hypocrite isn't a Christian who sins. A hypocrite isn't someone who claims to be a follower of Christ and then fails to live that sort of life in some way or another. Hypocrisy is, is calling yourself a Christian, identifying with Jesus, and yet living by a completely different story, not craving pure spiritual milk, but building your identity with all of these other superficial things. That's more fundamental to hypocrisy than just being a Christian who actually sins. Whenever I work with people in struggling marriages, whenever I work with do conflict resolution, whenever I work through issues of difficulty in my own life, one of the fundamental questions that I try to ask is, what story are they living by? What is at the very center of their heart that they're trying to meet by the way, the need that they're trying to meet by the way that they're act, acting, by the way that I'm acting? What are they demanding out of this relationship, that if they better understood who they were and the resources of the gospel, that would become less indispensable? What am I trying so hard to secure in my circumstances that would seem less essential if I really understood grace, if I really understood who I was in Christ and what God had done for me? You see, it's So much of our conflict happens because we're living by a story that's fundamentally false. We're living by a story that will never satisfy us. And so, therefore, we cling to other people. We cling to superficial identities. We fight and we grovel and we slander because we're never happy and we're never satisfied. But if the character of a Christian community is shaped by the gospel, if its foundation is what Jesus has done and doing can become the most life-giving, winsome, inviting place that you can possibly imagine. But if not, if it's not craving pure spiritual milk, it can become the most intolerant, most inflexible, most toxic places that you can imagine. And you don't want to be a part of a community like that. 
So the question, and I'll, I'll wrap up, I've gone a little bit too long, is are we, are we feeding ourselves in town? Are we feeding ourselves individuals with the pure spiritual milk of Jesus and His grace or the junk food that our culture and that we sometimes want to feed ourselves with, the junk food of status and power and control and predictability and self-indulgence? Are we feeding ourselves with those things to the very starvation of our souls? The cravings of a Christian community is that pure spiritual milk, and it develops and creates the character of that community. And then, and then finally, and I promise this point is like a third of the last one, is what is the calling of community? The calling of a community that craves that pure spiritual milk. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, chosen is sort of an icky word. We don't want to think about ourselves as chosen. We don't think about other people as chosen. It tends to puff them up and make them self-important. But that's not what is going on here. Because what Peter is saying is, is you are chosen, not a choice person. You see the difference? It's, you're not chosen because you were grade A beef. <laughs> You're not chosen because you were so great. You were chosen for a purpose. You were chosen to live a sacrificial life that brings praise and glory to God. You were chosen to receive this kingly rescue. And so, saying that you were a chosen people, a royal priesthood, it doesn't mean that we're a community that has it all together. It doesn't mean that we're a community without sin. It doesn't mean that we're a community that doesn't get it wrong sometimes or oftentimes. We certainly don't have it all figured out. That's not what it means to be chosen. It's a community of people that are chosen to be drawn together because they see themselves as equally in need of grace, equally in need of that spiritual milk, equally equally in need of the gospel. And that God has come to us not because of how special or how great A we were, but because we were in need and we were willing to accept and admit that, that need. And so it's a community that's, that's humbled without despair and exalted without arrogance. Humbled without despair, you need grace. You need Jesus. And yet, exalted without arrogance, you're a royal priesthood. You're a child of God. You've been chosen to carry out His special mission. You've been chosen so that you may declare the praises of Him who called you. You've been given new life for a reason, to proclaim praises. Proclaiming is so much more than just speaking so much more than words. It's to embody a whole new reality that your allegiance to Christ shows up in every area of life, sexually, politically, economically, socially, and that all of life in all of those areas is lifted up to God as praise. It's sacrificially offered to Him, laid at His feet. And so we'll end here. What what do we take away Or what's the invitation? Verse 4 is simply, 
come to Him. If you're here still trying to figure things out, still trying to work out spiritual reality in your head, if you're wondering if Jesus is who He says He is, if you're wondering if He can actually change you in the way that this passage claims, Peter says, come to Him. Lay your life at His feet and let Him lift you up. Come into this community as messy as it is and meet Jesus in the midst of a, of a physical community, not an abstract community, not a community of your wishes and your dreams, but a community that actually exists. And if you're His follower, if you've experienced new birth, then come and, and feed again on this pure spiritual milk. And that'll be our invitation to the table. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would let us be exalted without arrogance and humbled without despair. Help us to allow You to lift us up and not try to climb up out of the hole that we've dug ourselves by, our, by ourselves. I pray that we would be a spiritually dependent people, a spiritually dependent church, and yet a church that understands its exalted, exalted calling to sing your praises, to invite new people in, to be a welcoming, safe, loving community. We pray that each and every week as we gather that that would become more and more true of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.